Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So what is significant about today? Uh, you're wearing awesome shoes. I have great shoes, right? You're looking very springy, actually, because it is the first day of spring. First day of spring. It's solstice is tomorrow. It's my dad's birthday. It's your dad's birthday. It's Norwoos. <laughs> it's no ruse. No ruse. Happy no ruse. And no Mueller report. That's why today is the same as all other days. <laughs> it's also Purim. <laughs> I'm sure Bob Mueller took that into account, Actually, which is why we don't have a Mueller report today. He's like, we were going to release it today, but nah, it's <laughs> Purim. <laughs> the Jews are celebrating. The Iranians are celebrating. Why would we wreck the day? We'll do it tomorrow. It's a big day for Iran, actually, Purim and no ruse in yeah. one day. Well, it's too bad they won't have the Mueller report. (laughs) (laughs) Tomorrow. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Domestic is Global edition. I am Shane Harris, still eagerly waiting for my Mueller report. He hasn't sent it to me yet, you guys. You know. It must have got caught in my spam filter. That must (laughs) be it. I I, I imagine like, uh, you know, Andrew Weissman says to him, it's like that scene from Airplane. Andrew Weissman says, do you think we should release it today? And Mueller goes... No, that'll be just what they're expecting us to do. <laughs> you know that scene? I do. Should, should we turn on the runway lights? <laughs> exactly. That'll be just what we're expecting. No, it's it's been it's been a constant struggle lately in the newsroom of just managing expectations and anticipation. It's like Christmas is coming, but you don't know what day. <laughs> like it could be just around the corner, or it could be next year sometime. Uh, I'm here in the New Jungle Studio with my friends tomorrow. Coffin Wittis, Ben, Qu- Ben Quittis, Ben Wittis, <laughs> Ben Quidditch, <laughs> and Scott Anderson of Jet Lawfare is joining us. Hi guys, hey. hey, good to be with you guys. Yeah, it's good to have you here um, today on the podcast. The killing of 50 Muslims by a white supremacist in New Zealand prompts us to reconsider the meaning of domestic terrorism. The Pentagon identifies which projects it will cut to pay for President Trump's border wall. And the Trump administration revokes visas for investigators with the International Criminal Court. Um, let's start with the uh, – we'll start with the Christchurch shooting. Um, we won't go over all of the details obviously of the shooting itself. Just suffice to say to remind everybody uh, this individual uh, is a white supremacist, a white nationalist, appears to have been significantly radicalized on the internet and dwelled in some of the murkier and more disgusting corners of the online world and then decided to uh, take action uh, by shooting up two mosques. Uh, in New Zealand and killing 50 people. And of course, he live streamed a portion of this on Facebook and it went on viral on social media. But we want to talk about today is this idea that's been prompted um, partly by some reporting I did over the weekend and then by a great piece that's up in Lawfare right now by Nick Rasmussen, Mary McCord, and Josh Geltzer, uh, is the question of whether or not <clears throat> we are thinking about domestic terrorism too narrowly and whether we need to start thinking about incidents like what happened in New Zealand 
as more of an international problem because increasingly white nationalists and radicals are finding each other online in ways that transcend national borders. And I wrote a piece over the weekend sort of looking at the question of the five eyes share information routinely about foreign terrorists and international terrorist groups. Why aren't they doing so when it comes to domestic groups that maybe reside in one country and do their work in one country, but clearly pose a kind of common security threat? So Ben, let me just start with you. Briefly talk about why we divide things into foreign terrorism and domestic terrorism and how in this country, what do we actually mean legally when we say domestic terrorism? Right. So it's a really interesting question with really interesting both historical and legal and sort of sociological origins and, and justifications. But I think to answer it fully, you have to start in the early 1990s, right? And in the early 1990s, there is basically – two very distinct forms of terrorism, right? One is Tim McVeigh, right, who, you know, hates the government and wants to – he's a racist and he wants to kill people because he's upset about Waco and Ruby Ridge, right? And so he blows up a federal building and it's an entirely domestic thing, right? And then the other problem, which is really different from this – is characterized by Hamas, which is an overseas organization. It does not have a substantial domestic presence. But there's a bunch of people in the United States who are raising money for Hamas domestically. And so we have these very – I mean the one thing in common that they have is that they blow things up. And the result is one is much more easy one, – one is much easier to, to treat as a foreign policy matter, a regulatory matter and to fit in with our tradition of banning you know, interactions with organizations whereas the other one you really have to treat as a pure criminal law murder matter. And so what we do is we create two basically different regimes. One is just a simple extension of the criminal law. It says if you blow things up, you're going you're to kill people and you're guilty of murder, right? And that's what we call domestic terrorism. And the other says there are these groups and they're, they're foreign groups and the secretary of state and the attorney general designate them and once they're designated – you're not allowed to give them material support. You're not allowed to help them. You're really not allowed to engage with them. And this idea is dramatically reinforced by 9-11 where the groups are wholly overseas, right? But they're sending cells into the United States. So we'd end up with very different legal regimes for what we call domestic terrorism, which loosely translates to white supremacists and anti-abortion radicals, right, and a, a scattered other stuff. But animal rights. Yeah, there's there's some eco stuff. There's yeah. some animal rights stuff. There's a few, you know, a few crazy other stuff. But by and large, the lion's share of it is white supremacist and anti-abortion radicalism. And then you have all these overseas groups. And they're governed by very different regimes. And the problem is in the last few years, I think really starting with uh, the Norway attack, you know, where – which is a kind of white supremacist, neo-Nazi sort of thing. Where the victims are mostly children. The <laughs> kids. Um, starting with that, you really do have the beginning of a collapsing of these two things into one another. And now the New Zealand attack is really a – a very ISIS-like, self-radicalized, on 
internet, through connections to like-minded people overseas. And meanwhile, so that's looking more and more like ISIS. And meanwhile, ISIS and al-Qaeda is looking more and more like domestic terrorism in that they're rather than organizing attacks in the United States, they're just trying to radicalize people through social media. And maybe those people like Tim McVeigh then do stuff on their own. And so I think there is a real degree to which the strong divisions that we've had between you know, one group which has, you know, basically no international dimensions. It's just self-radicalized people in groups doing awful things domestically. And the other is overseas organized groups that, that you know, are really discernibly overseas. Both of those are a lot less true than they used to be. And so the regimes are starting to collapse into each other. Jamie. So I, I think that this is also – the sort of sudden realization that maybe white supremacist terrorism is relevant to think of in the context of international terrorism, that this is like a lightning bolt from above somehow, is also a manifestation of the myopia of not only the U.S. government, but most Western governments of the last 20 years um, with this fixation on Islamist terrorism as the only significant form of international terrorism. But if we think back to the 1970s when there were leftist terrorist groups that were international in nature and countries cooperated and shared intelligence and worked together to take those groups down or national liberation movements that were focused on a particular national struggle but operated internationally um, like the PLO and its terrorist heyday, you know, there is no reason that we should have the perception that we have today that international terrorism is all about Islamist terrorism. And there's no reason why we shouldn't recognize that just like, you know, those liberation movements in the 70s and those leftist movements and just like Islamist terrorism today, white supremacy has a global ecosystem and it has a global infrastructure, not in a strict organizational sense the way al-Qaeda did in the early 2000s, but certainly in a meaningful enough way that it should be thought of as global. The ideas are global. The technology that is being used to propagate these ideas and recruit people and teach them how to do things and how to think about things, that's global. And most importantly, these individuals see themselves as part of a global movement engaged in a global struggle. And I have to say that ecosystem extends beyond the people who embrace violence, advocate violence, plan and carry out violence. It extends beyond them to sort of intellectual fellow travelers. <laughs> and I don't think it's unrelated to the fact that, you know, some of the Steve Bannon, you know, goes and propagates ideas about migration and the loss of identity in Europe. That's part of the same ecosystem to my mind. But if there was ever a point at which white supremacy was more appropriately thought of as a domestic phenomenon, it is certainly true today that it is a transnational phenomenon. And so it should be combated that way. And Scott, it seems to me that a lot of what Tammy is saying about the description of how white nationalist groups have identified has been true for decades. I mean, many of them, while 
localized insofar as they're in one country and they're acting in one country and maybe their grievances are specific to their government. They do have a broader idea of the supremacy of the white race and they have these ideas about the threat from immigrants of all varieties. It strikes me what's going on now though is that what's making people sort of clue into this maybe and wake up is is the presence of the internet and the way that maybe like anyone can go online and just see for themselves the way people are finding each other, congregating with one another, radicalizing each other. And it's just maybe more in our faces to some degree. And like clearly they're they're using this as an organizational mechanism that we all understand the internet transcends national boundaries. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we've seen with the rise of the internet and online communities, this ability for people who once were very isolated in a viewpoint or had a certain perspective to form these sorts of communities that are reinforcing of those views. So, you know, the last 10 years, we've seen stories about this in regards to pedophilia and or turning into a political movement, this kind of self-reinforcing idea. There have been stories about groups of people who have schizophrenia or at least are believed to have schizophrenia who come on, form online communities and kind of reinforce each other's beliefs and begin to form this kind of common identity. I think we see that in a lot of different ways. And I think that maybe that does make it a little operationally different than it has been in the past because this is not just uh, maybe something motivated by political elements, but by interconnected sorts of connections between political grievances, social grievances that kind of come together. And that that raises new problems for the United States in particular and other countries as well that kind of go back to the domestic foreign divide that Ben was talking about, which is that, you know, part of the reason we have this divide in part is because of certain constitutional and then beyond that certain kind of values judgments about how we approach certain types of threats. The United States, foreign entities generally don't have constitutional rights. So it's very easy for us to say you're a foreign organization, your rights to association speech are limited. And we've seen that in play in regards to economic sanctions. We've seen in regards to material support laws targeting them, kind of aiming to create a social death for certain North organizations. The rare occasion we've seen that turn domestically, it's proved constitutionally controversial, difficult to uphold right after the 9-11 tax, for example, Domestic sanctions were applied to a number of Islamic charities that were U.S.-based, and they proved really legally problematic, and Treasury Department doesn't do that anymore, I suspect, because they're worried about the legal precedent. Here now, we're going to have to face this question saying, well, if these groups are really domestic-based, domestic political movements, um, are there constitutional limits that apply in a little different ways if there's not this foreign nexus? And maybe more importantly, I suspect, is, is the fact that this isn't that we're talking now about a political dynamic and political groups that have more salience to a bitter, beggar and different part of the American public, are they going to have the same political acceptability to Congress, to other figures? I mean, we're, we've seen a lot of controversial actions aimed against Muslim Americans in regards to the investigations. They're rightfully controversial in a lot of ways, um, but they haven't seen a strong pushback from, from Congress, from other folks in part because Muslim Americans are a minority. If we're seeing this turn towards Christians, even if it's an extreme bent of Christianity, or towards people seen as political conservatives, even if it's extreme bent of political conservatism, are we going to see that same level of tolerance or are these different methods going to prove a lot more controversial and difficult? Yeah, Ben, to speak to that because I wrote about this in the paper over the weekend with you know, saying what if you just took the Five Eyes infrastructure that we have and started using it to share information about domestic terrorists. Well, the first question, so-called domestic terrorists, the first question is like, all right, well, you're talking about putting U.S. persons' data into the information sharing stream among intelligence agencies in different countries and that's a big 
<laughs> That's a big stop sign right there. So talk about how we kind of would would begin to grapple with those restrictions, which are, I think everyone agrees, vitally important. Yeah, they're vitally important and there's a lot of them. So one of them is the one that you just flagged, which is you know sharing information on U.S. persons. Another one is that, as Scott pointed out, uh, the entire international terrorism infrastructure is built around groups. You know, starting with the, the the words of the material support statute, which is material support to a designated foreign terrorist organization, you got to have an organization, right? Now, this is already a problem with ISIS, where a bunch of people who are kind of loosely sympathetic are radicalizing each other. Is that the activity of a group or is that just individuals doing their thing? This is really a problem with white supremacists. There's a lot of white supremacists out there. And by the way, they you know, hang out and talk in online forums. They influence each other and one of them picks up a gun, right, or picks up a lot of guns. And so if you're trying to figure out who is criminally culpable, much less what groups can you then forbid people to interact with or provide support to, that becomes a super difficult thing especially because a lot of it is domestic and you get into the First Amendment issues and associational issues that Scott was referring to. Scott, you want to jump in? Yeah, well, I was going to say, you know, one thing we saw come out of this incident is that there's one group of entities that's already wrestling with some of these questions, and that is social media organizations that are finding themselves in this new regulatory role where they now have this positive expectation that they're supposed to be restricting these types of content. And not only that, identifying it and doing so quickly enough to prevent it from spreading. We saw a pretty big failure of that this weekend and how rapidly this video was able to promulgate around the internet, on Facebook in particular, YouTube, a few other places, despite pretty active efforts by these companies. You know, they're going to be in a position now if they're not already. And I suspect they internally they've begun to wrestle with this saying, well, how do we identify the actors, the players, the people to restrict these? And they, they don't have the same constitutional limits the U.S. government does, but they do still face the same court of public opinion that the U.S. government does in its policies when those policies come to light. And it'll be interesting to see how they begin to learn from their experience applying a lot of the same needs to the Islamic State context, to the global terrorism context, and then say, well, how many of those tools transfer over or can we transfer over to apply to this other right-wing terrorism context? And Tammy, it seems to me that if we're going to really seriously talk about governments and like the U.S. government making a policy change and trying to do more to interdict people who are about to plan attacks or get them much earlier and counter this kind of extremism, it would help to have a head of government that actually believed there was a problem. So, you know, the president spoke, was asked about the – after the shooting in the Oval Office last week, do you think white supremacy and white nationalism is a growing problem? And he said, no, not really. I think it's just sort of a one-off here and there, some you know very sick people. You know, the, the shooter in New Zealand specifically called out in a manifesto Donald Trump as a symbol of white identity and reclaiming it, which of course I don't think anybody's arguing that Donald Trump is responsible for the shooting, but he's also not acknowledging or admitting or recognizing that there is a growing threat here which seems manifestly true. I mean, if you could just look at the incidents that are happening around the, around the world. So the fact that he's not kind of buying into this, does that limit the possibilities for policy changes to address this problem? Well, it certainly limits the possibilities 
for making changes that require that level of executive authority. So, And it certainly impairs the ability of Congress, for example, to address some of the legal limitations that Ben and Scott were laying out. But to the extent that there's cooperation and inf- information sharing that's within the discretion of intelligence agencies or the FBI, which has plenty of international liaison relationships and does a lot of international investigations. It's hard for me to imagine that there couldn't be more attention to this issue without that level of buy-in from the leadership. A. B, it strikes me that even if you are an American president who believes that white supremacy isn't that big a deal and it's just a few crazy guys with guns, or or perhaps especially if that's what you believe, it should be relatively simple to instruct your Federal Bureau of Investigations to devote appropriate resources to preventing this kind of mayhem, right? This is an anti-crime president. If it's not a big deal, just let them do their jobs um, and expect them to do them well. And you don't have to sort of, you know, you don't have to, as one might hope that an American political leader would do, condemn the ideology. You just have to let your law enforcement and intelligence services do their work. I also have to say, you know, After Oklahoma City, we had a round of debate about the legitimacy or illegitimacy of these extremist white nationalist views. And that was a debate that included Congress in the executive and, you know, the the culture more broadly. And I think that it's not as though this is a new issue for us, but this is a case where I think to a certain degree, the federal government took its eye off the ball. And now it needs to, to focus back in on what that problem is. Well, one place where the president is definitely focused is the southern border. Like a laser, laser. Shane. Because it is chaos down there. Wall is going to fix that, Dammy. It's a national emergency. Well, it's going to – well, and, and now we know how we're going to pay for it. It's not going to be in pesos, my friends. <laughs> no, in fact, it looks like Mexico is not going to pay for it. Every single American yeah, is every school pay for district. It. Right. Yeah, every right, school right. district. Every congressional district is gonna pay for it. Uh, so Scott, the Pentagon delivered this week a, a list of the projects that could possibly be affected by the president's decision to use emergency authorities um, to take up about three point six billion in military construction funds for the border wall. So what do we know about who is on the list? I suspect it's a list that not many people are really happy to be on. I think that's right. Uh, And it's a little bit of a deceptive list uh, as to what this is because this is kind of just the back half of the actual list that's going to be affected by the president's wall program. Uh, When the president made his February 15th declaration, he said there's going to be four sources of money. We have $1.3 billion in appropriated DHS money. We have $601 million from a treasury forfeiture. We haven't seen much information about what that fund or those funds are going to be – would be used for are now being reprogrammed over. It's possible they didn't have a designated use before. And then we have $2.5 billion in uh, funds for counter-narcotics purposes that are used to build fences and roads along corridors for drug smuggling and organized crime. This is another DOD fund that uh, right now there's only $800 million appropriated for that purpose, meaning they're going to have to reprogram $1.7 billion on top of that to meet that target. We've seen nothing about that. 
This is the third list, which the president said explicitly is going to be the last order. They're going to do these in that order till they get to fund down. This is the military construction list, where it says under 10 U.S.C. 2808, when the president declares a national emergency, this is the authority for which he declared the now fairly controversial national emergency, says the president can reprogram military construction funds where necessary for military purposes to support the activities of the armed services. And that's what we have here. We have a long list, 20-odd pages, uh, secured by Senator Jack Reed, it should be said, uh, whose office distributed this after receiving it from the Defense Department this week, listing a whole array of projects from everything ranging from bulk storage tanks in Australia, I lost my aim at Lord Bay, to schools in Germany, um, to air traffic control base in North Carolina, all over the place. And some of these are funds that were appropriated all the way back in 2015. Um, now, the president has put a couple of contingencies on that that's worth bearing in mind. He says, again, these are going to be last. He says, last in order. Only We're going to, only going to do this if we can't get funds elsewhere. Uh, he says, no military housing, barracks, or dormitory projects will be impacted. Because that proved very controversial ideas. We're going to take soldiers' housing for this wall. And he said that no, this, none of this money is going to go away. All these places are going to be totally funded as soon as you give me my budget for next year because he's asked for this exact same $3.6 billion in next year's budget so we can make up and pay for all of this. It's a bit of a claim to which at least Senator Reid and other people have reacted pretty incredulously. Uh, and it's a sign of what an uphill fight I think a lot of this is going to be politically given how many equities this request is really going to affect the bottom line of. Timmy, this strikes me as like the reverse of what happens when you build a bomber or a big airplane, like where every state wants to build some component or piece of it. And this is like, you know, to build the wall, everybody's going to have to like lose a digit, right? Or take some sort of like, you know, cut off of somebody. I mean, just politically, this seems crazy. Like why would, you know, the, 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 well, no one's going to be happy and everyone's going to get screwed in some way. And of course, that's exactly why the administration didn't want to issue this list because they knew as soon as they did individual members of Congress and senators would see whose ox is getting gored, which local constituents are not getting their new school on an army base or their new medical facility on an army base or, um, you know, whatever it may be. I mean, these are all basically construction projects. They all involve local jobs. They all involve local supply orders. So there's a, a ripple effect on the economies. Um, in these locations. And just running down this list very quickly, it's at least 25 states in U.S. territories um, that are going to be losing, most of them, more than one project. And so, you know, if you add up all of the congressional districts involved, like he was already losing the national emergency vote. This is untenable. It's untenable for individual members to contemplate that their districts are going to have to pay the price for a problem that most Americans don't want to solve this way. I mean, it's very, very consistent public opinion on this. So it's a political loser. We don't yet know how much money will actually be available from the first priority and second priority sources, but there's been a lot of reporting to indicate that it's perhaps less than was originally suggested. So it's, it's probably a good guess. <laughs> yeah, so it's almost inevitable <laughs> that projects on this list are going to get axed. And, you know... He seems to feel confident he's not going to face a veto override. But after releasing this, I don't know. Ben, does this make your comments? But I also wonder whether you think, you know, the president has said that the border wall is a vital, I think he would probably say the most important right now, at least domestically, national security initiative underway. 
Does it undermine national security to rob Peter to pay Paul uh, in this way? Well, of course it does. I mean, the only question is how much, right? You know, these are programs that Congress, projects that Congress appropriated money for that the Pentagon felt were priority items for one reason or another. Now, there's not to say there's not pork barrel and kind of you know, waste in Pentagon construction spending. But these are in the normal process what the Pentagon decided it, it wanted to spend its money on and Congress agreed. And it is a highly unusual exercise of presidential power for the president to go to, you know, 100 members of the Senate and 535 members of Congress, about, you know, about half of whom are from his own party and say, you are going to vote for me to steal that money to spend it on something that I want to spend it on on the southern border or else I'm going to gin up a primary challenge against you in your district. And, you know, that's an extremely unusual exercise of presidential authority. And, you know, for a majority of members of both the Senate and the House, it doesn't work. That is, they voted against him the first time. But for apparently enough to sustain a veto, it actually does work. And what Trump is saying to these members is, you know, give me the projects in your district so that I can convert them into southern bordered wall construction or I will campaign against you and, and you know, loose my, my uh, supporters on you. And, you know, that's, a, that's an extraordinary thing. And so that's what this list represents, actually. It represents not merely the projects that will be – are at risk, but the president's leverage over particularly Republican members of the House and Senate. I'm also – I mean, just some of these specific projects you can look at and say – the backlash here could be disastrous. Like, you know, Camp Pendleton in California, which is a major installation, there's funding for a fire emergency response station. Are they really going to cancel the fire emergency <laughs> response station in California? This is the military. Right. This in isn't the California. state of California <laughs> yeah. government. You, you don't know. need a fire department. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come it's on, nature's people. way to let it burn. No, but but the but the critical thing you have to do with that list is you have to take it and figure out how many of those projects are in districts of people who are a Republicans and b voted with the president on the original passage of of this resolution of disapproval. Then you see. Are those people going to vote the same way after the release of this list on the veto override? And that is an interesting measure of how much power the president has over his caucus. And I would say there's two other uses for this list that's going to be really useful as we start looking at the court battle that's coming over this wall. Because the first thing this list does is even before we get to the list, it says this, which is very important. Joint staff in NorthCom will examine a project list of specific border barrier construction projects provided by DHS and conduct a mission analysis on which border barrier projects will support the use of the armed forces. 
That is not pat language. That's the statutory requirement for the authority that they're using. So they're saying here, we're going to have an interagency process that's going to go through every individual border building project. And we're going to say, here's how it supports the armed forces. And then they're going to have to pick which of these they're going to defund to do that on. Now, if you are somebody looking to challenge these laws, this is really where you give your knives out because you are going to start digging deep into that process and say, well, what are the standards you're applying? What are you going to be looking at? This DOD body. And those are the things that you're going to try and attack the president on, not these broad constitutional questions necessarily, not just the national emergency, but really just are you even applying the law as written that you claim to be applying? And that's not the only one. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to get another list like this for the 284 authority, for for things that are going to be deprogrammed in other parts of DOD activities in theory, before these even get to here. And we've already seen congressmen begin sending a letter out this week. It was on March 11th from a trio of senators to the Government Accountability Office setting out the parameters of the transfer authority the president's going to have to use to get that extra $1.7 billion. And that includes assertions that the money is being used based on unforeseen military needs and for, for higher priority items, meaning the walls can be considered higher priority than whatever items are on those lists, and uh, is going to be used for purposes that Congress hasn't already rejected, which arguably Congress has, at least these senators feel it has, in not granting the president's budget request. So we are about to see a huge fight really around the nitty gritty here. I think we've heard and seen even the filing so far talk about the Constitution in broad terms and broad principles. But really, the terrain that's going to be fought on, out on is in the detail of these specific actions and the extent to which they comply with the law the president claims to be invoking. Well, speaking of immigration. <laughs> there are some folks that we're not going to be letting into our country. That's right. <laughs> We've identified some more people we don't want here. Investigators with the International Criminal Court, no entry. You may not pass. Scott, uh, Secretary Pompeo announced this week that we are not going to issue visas for investigators with the ICC. Talk about which investigators we're talking about here and then let's kind of give people an overview of what prompted this action. What are we What are we trying to keep these investigators from doing should they be traveling to the United States? Yeah, absolutely. So Secretary Pompeo said, you know, this is essentially us following through on a threat we made in September of last year where we said, ICC, you've got this request to open an investigation in regards to our conduct in Afghanistan that was filed in 2017. We're not happy about that. We don't want to see that happen. And at the time, the Trump administration laid out three threats. They said, first, we're going to deny you visas. Then we're going to sanction you, meaning ICC personnel. And then we're going to criminally prosecute you. As with John Bolton's speech, I should say, I think, I believe before the Federalist Society. Um, This is, again, going back, Pompeo says this is kind of the first salvo. And he promises more. And he mentioned specifically sanctions in his remarks. The visa limitations, though, are a little bit limited. He says, we're going to use these visas and restrict them for access to investigators who are involved in investigating U.S. soldiers. So people pursuing this Afghanistan and investigation. And allies, right? And potentially potentially allies. I got to go back and check on that. It may just be U.S. service members. I'll double check on that. But specifically looking at this scope of investigation. So it's not necessarily all ICC personnel. They also say explicitly, we're going to do it in a manner that complies with our obligation under the U.N. headquarters agreement, which is a big deal. Um, because the U.N. headquarters agreement says you have to let U.N. people 
into the United States. And the ICC is a UN observer party and is invited to lots of UN proceedings by the United Nations. Now, there's still space for dispute here. The United States tends to argue that its obligations under the UN headquarters agreement have a security exception. If they think something is a threat to US national security, the UN famously does not always buy that argument as a source of kind of perennial theoretical tension that usually the parties work out through practical compromise. Um, but it could be a point, a sticking point here if the Trump administration decides to rely on that and say that even though we have the UN headquarters agreement, we can deny this. In practice, I suspect this is much more of a shot across the bow, a symbolic measure that's um, unlikely to have really significant impact. But if they open this Afghanistan investigation, you know, in theory, I suppose it's possible. Ben, this makes me think about like things like status of forces agreements, right? And how we we will not allow our troops to be based in a country where they are beholden to the laws of that country. We want to prosecute them for any crimes they commit under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. So we're not a party to the ICC, although I think we're a, we're a signatory in some fashion. We right, signed the Rome Treaty, which established the ICC, but we never joined the court and we never submitted that treaty to Senate for ratification. So as undiplomatic as this might seem and as largely symbolic, is this in keeping largely with the way that we say to the world, crimes and misconduct by our own forces is a matter for us to prosecute and no one else's? No, I, I don't <laughs> think it is. So look, there, there is a part of this that is uh, – I mean let, let's divide the US posture toward these things into three discrete categories. The first is the US is a unique country and having massive – diverse overseas deployments. They are often done in addition for our own strategic interests for the benefit of the countries in whose where we are deployed. And they very, those some of those countries very badly want U.S. troops there. And in that context, we make arrangements with those countries. If we're going to base large numbers of troops in your country, you need to not have jurisdiction over them for criminal purposes. We will take responsibility for criminally prosecuting them. That is a pretty uniform U.S. position. It sometimes causes serious frictions with local populations, particularly when we had large numbers of U.S. troops in downtown Seoul, right, when it also – comes up in Okinawa on a fairly regular basis. It's a persistent issue with local populations. But there's it's very hard to get around it if you're a US policymaker, irrespective of your of your ideology or, or philosophical views, because you you're responsible to for 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 the the for US troops and you can't make them subject to the jurisdiction of other countries. That point is pretty broadly accepted, I think. Number two, which is a little bit more controversial, is uh, making U.S. troops subject to the ICC in theory. Now, the Clinton administration signed the ICC with a bunch of caveats and protections. The Bush administration unsigned it famously. And the Obama administration sort of tolerated the ICC without joining it, cooperated with it on a bunch of points. But there does not – is not a whole lot of appetite in the U.S. policymakers, legalists have to sign the ICC, to be part of the ICC at this point. That's relatively well accepted. This is different. This is making war on the ICC. 
you know, a sort of energetic campaign of, of delegitimization, of going after the institution, of disrupting its operations. Uh, and that strikes me as wholly different and more a creature of the pathological interests of John Bolton than about – and I mean, Scott, you know more about this stuff than I do. But that strikes me as wholly different from what I think is the stuff that you're referring to, Shane, which is kind of just the mainstream U.S. position that like having diverse far-flung deployments is hard and we have an obligation to, to protect our troops from, from local law enforcement. I'm not sure it's fair to say that this is just an obsession of John Bolton's though. And I think that this gets to what's complicated about the International Criminal Court and the U.S. role in multilateral institutions generally, although this one sort of brings it to a head in a bunch of ways, which is that, you know, it's not just John Bolton. There's a whole group of people on the right, but not exclusively on the right, who have a view of American power and America's role in the world that says, you know, we have rule of law, we have a righteous ideology, we have national interests that are good for the whole world, and we have predominant power in the world. And so when we operate in the world, we're a force for good, and we, that shouldn't be subject to questioning by some weird international organization that we don't ourselves dominate or that we didn't ourselves, you know, establish in our own image. So on the one hand, it's of a piece with Bolton's obsession with breaking down UN institutions. On the other hand, it's of a piece with a, a view of American power and America's role in the world and what's useful or not about multilateral institutions that has many, many more supporters in the United States than that. And that's why the U.S. attitude toward the International Criminal Court has been so deeply ambivalent from the beginning. I mean, you know, most of the international institutions operate on the rule of, you know, the the strong do what they can and the weak do what they must. And, you, you know, the United Nations tries to kind of put a little bit of a gloss on that, but that's not how things work out in practice. And the ICC was created in part to counter that explicitly to handcuff big, powerful states and hold them accountable to a set of international rules of behavior. And the U.S. was never on board with that. And so I, I – all right, maybe they're going to war unnecessarily because, Scott, like, am I – tell me if I'm wrong, but this seems like this whole thing is more hypothetical than real anyway. But I can't be too upset with their basic attitude. Well, so I, I think that they are doing something tactically here that goes into – uh, the real political controversy surrounding the ICC and its relationship to other states, actually. And that's a way this is a little different, a little bit of a broader assault. Um, you know, essentially they are saying, and it's pretty clear from Pompeo's remarks, he's saying, this is a shot across the bow. If you continue to consider this request to open investigation to Afghanistan, we're going to keep taking measures against you. Try and bring political pressure for them to withdraw that request. Uh, he says explicitly the reason we're doing this is because that request is still pending despite us having threatened to do something five months ago, six months ago. The problem with that though is that for most of the countries that are members of the ICC, many of them, particularly in Africa, have been threatening to withdraw because they say ICC is too much of service of the great powers. All the ICC does is investigate Africans and African 
different states. And they don't understand why this supposedly international body is so focused unilaterally on them and doesn't investigate the conduct of all these other states. So Bolton's putting them in a very difficult position. Either the ICC capitulates and shows to the internal critics who object to their perceived disparate treatment that, yeah, in fact, the United States does boss the ICC around. Uh, Or they pursue the investigation and draw a line in the sand with the United States, who then has open license to start unveil- unleashing some of these more severe measures. Now, a lot of the measures the president and uh, – or really, it's just been jumbled and the secretary have promised aren't legally feasible. There's no legal basis for criminally prosecuting any of these people. To do economic sanctions, you'd have to declare a national emergency, something the president's fond of these days but seems <laughs> unlikely here, uh, and install economic sanctions that way. Very unlikely. Visa is the one thing where they have an argument legally that they can do it. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't more measures the president uh, can try and pursue or the president's administration can try and pursue um, in regards to alienating this relationship. And this investigation could give them the justification to do it. So I, I think there is more going on here with how the administration is approaching this. Can I ask, though, is is the criticism of why is the ICC picking on African countries, is that – I mean, why is the perception that that's the result of bullying by Western powers or by the United States? I mean, why isn't it obvious that Sudan's Omar Bashir is a horrific rights abuser ruling over a country where he's never going to be held accountable and therefore falls easily within the purpose of the ICC? I mean, well, it's so you could you could take that question a step further and say, you know, the desire on the part of some people and, you know, to have the the ICC look at U.S. conduct is flatly contrary to the ICC's right, because uh, we have know, charter in the sense that <laughs> that, you know, it is supposed to give primacy to the to the state to evaluate conduct by its own people. And unless there's some reason to particularly doubt the state's ability or willingness to prosecute actual crimes, you know, it doesn't actually have jurisdiction. And so the ICC is not being an entirely good faith actor here, in my view. That said, it really doesn't justify what they're doing. Or even from an anti-colonialist perspective, you know, Afghanistan hasn't asked them to investigate the misdeeds of American forces in Afghanistan, but Afghanistan could in theory, I don't know what our status of forces agreement might allow, but Afghanistan should have jurisdiction before the ICC, shouldn't it, Scott? Well, Afghanistan joined the ICC in 2006. So, I mean, that's that's kind of the argument here is that they're saying Afghanistan took this action. The United States continued to intervene militarily knowing that this was at least to some extent a possibility. Um, and I think that goes back to the criticism to, for the many African states who are saying we voluntarily joined the ICC, but so have these other countries and crimes by them aren't being investigated at the same rate as crimes by us. I think Ben's point about complementarity is the principle is the right one. That's the ground on which you defend this. You say as the United States, we have a justice system. We have a functional system by which we hold our military personnel accountable. Instead, the administration is saying we're drawing a line in the sand before scrutiny even gets to us. And that's where I think there's a little bit of a different approach here than we've seen in the past. All right. Let's move on to object lessons. Uh, Tammy, you want to go first? Sure. Well, I'm going to do a bit of log rolling today because that's the fun of having your own podcast. (laughs) (laughs) There may be a lot of log rolling going on (laughs) on this object lessons, just to be clear. Okay. This is the log rolling edition of object lessons, starting with my new paper with my brilliant co-author, Yael Mizrahi Arnaud. This is a paper that we've been working on literally for months on the question of whether 
Israel in the populist, ethnic nationalist politics that we have seen in spades recently and and in the current election campaign, whether this suggests that Israel is in democratic decline or its democratic institutions or procedures or norms being eroded by this sort of exclusionary nationalist populism. And, And so our paper was published Monday night. You can find it on the Brookings website. And it is also part of a series, which I think is really cool, called Democracy and Disorder, which looks at populist politics and democratic decline in a whole bunch of different places in Europe and Latin America and here in the United States. Okay. Ben? Well, last week on Rational Security, I posed an object lesson riddle, which was what did I and a group of a uh, rather diverse group of people, uh, including Charlie Sykes of the Bulwark podcast, Rachel Maddow, John Legend, my Brookings colleague Alina Polyakova, and the former president of Estonia, Tomas Ilvis, all have in common. And for those of you who do not listen to the Lawfare podcast, you may still be wondering about what we all have in common. But for those of you who listen to the Lawfare podcast, you now know the answer, which is that we uh, have in common speaking indictments, which in the absence of the Mueller report is a little bedtime story that you can listen to on the Lawfare podcast where all of those people and some more read actual text of Bob Mueller indictments. And it is a charming, I hope, effort (laughs) to tell the story of the Russia conspiracy in the words of Bob Mueller by a a group of people uh, who had a lot of fun with it, I hope. And, uh, And it comes off in the entire Mueller investigation in 20 minutes of of audio book. It's actually it's it's more than charming. It's actually pretty persuasive. I mean, the way that you guys sort of chopped everything down into a narrative, which I kind of have the feeling Bob Mueller himself is not going to do. Yeah, so I, it's a useful listen. You know, it's 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 there is literally nothing new in it. It is all stuff that Bob Mueller has actually said. We used only real words of Bob Mueller. But all of this stuff is scattered through lots of different court filings and there was no place where it had been brought together as a narrative. Here's what Bob Mueller had found. And so as we were thinking about the forthcoming Mueller report, there were all these stories that was like, well, he's already kind of issued a report through these indictments. We were like, well, what if we had a dramatic reading of that and what if we got fun people to – to, oh, the to do brainstorming that stuff. at yeah. the Lafayette It's, it's also sort of inter- awesome to hear John Legend reading anything like Michael Cohen. <laughs> yeah, John Legend. <laughs> He's a very theatrical voice. John Legend yeah, did, a, might did a fabulous job reading. And I want to say also uh, uh, that Charlie Sykes oh, he was great. is a fabulous reader. He reads the George Papadopoulos section. And it's it, so lucid. It is so – it is just – it is a beautiful, beautiful reading voice. You can just imagine it being like, and then can you believe this? It, it's, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> His emphasis is just right. <laughs> Scott, what's your object? Um, well, next week is a day or a series of days that I look forward to every year uh, about as much as Christmas uh, for international law nerds out there is the annual meeting of the American Society of International Law. I'll uh, be there. I'm very excited. Everyone should be there, hopefully. Um, <laughs> oh, I'll be there. <laughs> you know about my panel? I just oh, want, I'm I, excited. I just we'll, want talk, you all, we'll talk about that next week. I just week. want oh, you all to pause over what Scott just said, <laughs> is, that every year he looks forward to ASIL 
the way he looks forward to Christmas. I, I really do. His, <laughs> it's a reunion. Character. There are gifts at the end when they put all the books on sale. It's one of my favorite <laughs> three days of the year. Uh, and this year, is, I'm particularly excited. as uh, There's a panel I'm moderating on Thursday at 3 p.m. Um, that I encourage people to check out if you're attending, uh, although the conference is not free. But, but check it out if you're attending. Don't sneak in. Because it um, is for lawyers. It's for lawyers, exactly. <laughs> um, and it is a moot court uh, that we have around a piece of legislation. This is Senate Joint Resolution 4, um, which is a legislative proposal that would purport to prevent the president from withdrawing from NATO. And it's modeled on actually a lawfare idea uh, that I sketched out over the summer um, in substantial part and was introduced. No action on it yet, but still sitting there at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And it is going to be debated by uh, before a judge, a trio of judges that includes former Solicitor General Donald Verrilli, uh, Professor Kurt Bradley, who's kind of one of the eminent experts on this, Professor Catherine Powell, who's another former State Department official and expert on international law, and with advocacy by Chris Von Zone, who used to be the National Security Legal Advisor at the National Security Council, and Ginger Anders, who used to be a senior Solicitor General official and frequent arguer before the real Supreme Court. So we're very excited to see how this breaks down and how people look at this pretty original constitutional question about where the line is drawn between congressional and presidential authority in this area. So check it out. And I believe it is going to be made available in audio and visual formats after the fact. And I will tweet out a link to that or see if I can get it posted somewhere on Lawfare or something once we have it. Okay, great. Uh, For my object, uh, as people may know, C-SPAN, the venerable C-SPAN, is celebrating its 40th anniversary. We love how geeky and boring you are, C-SPAN. C-SPAN is great. It is really- Is this better or worse than the annual meeting of the American Society of International Law? (laughs) On the geekiness scale. It may have been around longer. (laughs) 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 But uh, uh, C-SPAN has also been uh, not just a a place where a lot of Washington journalists have appeared. It's been a place where a lot of us Washington journalists made our first TV appearances. Uh, So my friend Jackie Kucinich, who's the uh, DC bureau chief over the Daily Beast and a CNN contributor- Last night tweeted a picture of one of her early C-SPAN appearances as a way of saying, you know, it kind of it's like funny, like you know, sharing your old high school yearbook photo, oh yeah, uh, and how much we've changed, but as a way of calling out a happy anniversary to C-SPAN, which spawned a thread where many journalists last night no started way. posting with big hair and e- wide ties, or just like or like me, looking like I'm like 17 years old or something. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, this this is definitely not my earliest appearance on C-SPAN. <laughs> um, it was some of the earlier war, earlier ones in National Journal. Oh, it was a National Journal from about 10 years ago. But I'll, I'll post a link to the- I uh, knew you back then. You sure did. You showed up all fresh-faced all in my fresh-faced. office to talk to me about the history of surveillance. That's right, because John <laughs> Rausch told me to do it, and that's all come full circle. You uh, but like that. What's that? You looked like that. I, I did look like that. I kind of still look like that maybe a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> but there's a lot of fun people on here. Glenn Kessler's on here. Darren Samuelson. Um, who else is on here? Uh, Dustin Volz from the Wall Street Journal. Sue Davis, my friend from NPR. Andrew Noyce, used to be a national journal. Ed O'Keefe, Manu Raju, Julie Davis, Ryan Lizza. It really is like this wow, crazy. everybody. It looks like everyone's high school yearbook. It was a lot of fun. So we'll post the picture of the tweet. Uh, but go check it out. And happy anniversary, C-SPAN. We are so glad that you're here. And that brings us to the end of the podcast, you guys. Aww. Rational Security is not 40 years old. But no. One day we will be. One day we will be. And we are a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can buy your merch at lawfareblogstore.com. Thelawfarestore.com. Thelawfarestore.com. And you should watch our movie, Brookings. I tweeted it today. Brookings made a movie about the history of lawfare. Really? Uh, you should all watch it. Wow. I'd watch that. Yeah. 
That could be like you could stream it on Netflix. Maybe that should like an extra. I know a, the history of a, additional object <laughs> lesson, special extra extra object lesson addition. <laughs> well, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and a review. It really helps us out. Our audio engineer this week was Matthew Kahn. The show is edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Donald Trump and his new marching band. Okay, it's going to consist of students displaced from an army-based high school in Lima, Ohio. They're, Lima. They're, Lima, okay. Well, <laughs> that, that too. And they're going to come to the White House and going to form a new band. It's called We Don't Need No Education. There you go. You like that? Yeah. Get that connection. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Well okay, done. That's good. That's good. Sophia Yam would Who definitely... You know, I'm out of my element on this one. <laughs> Sophia Yam would definitely be in a Pink Floyd tribute band. I think she'd be down with that. <laughs> On behalf of my good friends, Tamar Kaufman-Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Scott Anderson, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 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 Mm